First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Russia's invasion of Ukraine happened nearly a year ago. Today, we have a live report from Kyiv on Ukrainians' resolve to win the war. Good morning. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, we speak with reporter Daniel Offman of The World. He is on the ground in Ukraine, and he'll update us on what's happening there. You can join in and give us a call. It's 549-2937. Then later, we'll tell you how local chaplains are pushing back against the growth of Christian nationalism. Plus, a little good news for your week, including today's high school heritage classic between longtime rivals Reigns and Rebalt. That and more ahead this morning. But first this hour, Ukraine today says it has repelled Russian attacks in Luhansk as NATO members call for more spending to help Ukrainians beat back Vladimir Putin's aggression. It's been nearly a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. Hard to believe, but it has And The World, a co-production of PRX and GBH and Public Radio's longest-running daily global news program, is going to air coverage marking the one-year anniversary starting next week on February 20th and culminating in a special broadcast on Friday, February 24th. You'll hear those programs right here on 89.9. Daniel Offman, reporter for The World, joins us via Zoom now with more from Kyiv and what's happening in Ukraine. He's been reporting on the conflict for some time. Daniel, it's good to have you on the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And what are your questions for Daniel Offman of The World about Russia's war against Ukraine? Give us a call. 549-2937. That's 549-2937. Emails to First Coast Connect at WJCT.org. Tweets to at Melissa Injax. Facebook always open. So, Daniel, it's my understanding you were on the road to Kiev this morning, or perhaps you're already there? That's right. Uh, I'm here in Ukraine's capital, Kiev. Yep. Oh. So you have been making trips to Ukraine before the war began and during the conflict. Can you uh, tell us what it's like there in the capital today? Where do things stand this morning in Kiev as we get close to that one year anniversary of this conflict? Well, if you come to Ukraine, wherever you are in Ukraine, but in this case, the capital in Kiev, uh, you definitely understand that this is a country at war. There are Reminders everywhere. As as you come into the city, you'll see uh, checkpoints. You'll see uh, hedgehogs, anti-tank hedgehogs. Uh, in the outskirts of the city, you'll see buildings that have been destroyed. So there is there are signs all over that this is a country at war and it's a difficult situation. Uh, on top of that, at times there are blackouts. Every now and then there are air raid sirens. Uh, in which people go to bomb shelters. Some people ignore those sirens. On the other hand, in places, even in places of war, life goes on. So cafes are open, restaurants are open. Um, People get used to, unfortunately, people get used to even the most difficult situations. Sure. This morning, Ukraine is saying it has repelled the latest Russian attacks in the Luhansk region. Uh, Overall, the coverage we get out of Ukraine seems to indicate that Ukraine is winning the war but that it's a long, hard, grinding slog that Vladimir Putin keeps doubling down, refusing to give up, admit defeat. What can we take from these assessments? What's your assessment of how the war is going? As you've noted, this war has gone on for almost a year. This full-scale version of the war, remember that Russia initially invaded Ukraine in 2014, when its troops went into Crimea and then unraveled a war in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass, where the war is continuing today. So the war is ongoing. It's a grinding war. And that's that's kind of the sense that people here in Ukraine have. That they're confident uh, and they're hopeful that Ukraine eventually will win this war. The question is, how long will it take? So right now, as reported, there are ongoing battles uh, for the most part. Uh, in areas in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbas region, specifically around a place called the Bakhmut. Um, many people are getting injured. Many people are dying. Uh, it's a difficult situation there, but it's ongoing. It's a war of attrition, and it will likely go on for some time. 
We see NATO members calling for more aid to be sent to Ukraine. Of course, the U.S. has been providing that. How critical has the support been from America in terms of providing weapons and other means of support in beating back the Russian aggression? And is the U.S. prepared to do more? From my time here in Ukraine, I've spoken to many veterans and I've spoken to many active active uh, members of Ukraine's armed forces. And almost all of them, when I asked them about that U.S. support, they are very thankful for that support. Uh, they talk about the impact that it's had on the ground. Uh, and we've seen this come in waves. It, from At the beginning of the war, we saw how important javelins were, these anti-tank weapons. Uh, then we saw the impact of artillery. And we also saw the impact of HIMARS, these multiple rocket, uh, mobile rocket launchers. All of these things really affect the situation on the ground. Uh, and people in Ukraine are thankful for the U.S.'s support. Uh, on the other hand, it's been Ukraine's strategy, and this is also echoed uh, in the lower ranks that Ukraine needs more support. Um, Russia has Russia has a lot of troops that it's mobilizing into Ukraine. So what Ukraine has to its advantage is the quality of U.S. support and the quality of the support coming from other Western countries. So it is echoing that message that it needs more support. And the U.S. is certainly capable of doing that. The U.S. has been very supportive, supportive of Ukraine, but it's also been pretty measured in its aid to Ukraine and has been giving that aid kind of in waves over the last year. Your call's in just a few minutes as we speak live with Daniel Offman, reporter for The World. He's with us from Kiev, 549-2937. Daniel, can you frame this conflict for us as part of a larger global struggle that is emerging around the world between democracies and dictatorships? Can you talk about why it is so important for the Biden administration and other countries around the world that Ukraine be victorious against Russia, which seeks to impose its dictatorship on Ukraine, which is a democracy, albeit a flawed one, but one that has aligned with the values of the West? Yeah, that's that's a message that Ukraine has been uh, has been expressing over the course of this war that. Uh, it is not just about Ukraine. It is, in fact, a war that um, has ripple effects throughout the globe. It's affected. Uh, it's affected uh, food security in certain countries. Ukraine is a large source of grain uh, to many countries around the world. Uh, there, of course, there's also what you just mentioned—the idea of uh, security and and democracy. Basically, what, what kind of world would we like to live in? That's the question that Ukrainians are asking. That's the question that U.S. officials are asking as well. Do we want to live in a world in which one country, uh, in this case, Russia, led by Vladimir Putin, uh, can send its troops into a sovereign neighboring country and uh, invade it and try to occupy some of its territories? Um, the U.S. and Ukraine and other partners have sent a strong message that's not a world that they would like, that we would like to live in. Um, so, yeah, th this is this is a much bigger this is a much bigger war uh, when it comes to those idea ideals that people in the U.S. and in Ukraine uh, do support. If you're just tuning in, our guest right now is Daniel Offman, reporter for The World. He's live from Kiev, bringing us up to date on the situation in Ukraine as we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of that sovereign nation. And let's go to your calls now. What are your questions? What are your thoughts? It's 549-2937. Give us a call. Jim in Orange Park is with us. Hey, Jim, good morning to you. Go right ahead. Hey, thanks much for taking my call. Daniel, thanks for shedding light on this. Uh, I just have a comment. Um, in 1997, my brother, youngest brother, he joined the Peace Corps and, out of college, and he moved to uh, Sumy, uh, which is on the western, uh, actually the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, and he's been there for the last 25 years. After the Peace Corps, he joined Quality Schools International, which is an international school system that, that teaches uh, the Foreign Service, the embassy personnel around the world, uh, contractors, and Ukrainian citizens. Uh, and so he was fortunate that uh, in February of last year that 
you know, they had to leave Ukraine and um, they ended up, uh, uh, a lot of them ended up in Albania, but he's living in uh, Germany right now. But he's still actually teaching via uh, Zoom uh, Ukrainian students that, uh, that, that weren't fortunate to get out and that they're still there. Uh, the, what's ironic is last Wednesday, he sent me a link that the school in Ukraine had just opened back up. There was a staff of like three people and one teacher. Uh, and then on Thursday, uh, Kiev was bombed again by, uh, by Russia. Uh, so I just wanted to shed some light that there are a lot of uh, American citizens that, you know, that, that lived in Ukraine that were actually teachers uh, and you know they're displaced, but they're, the resiliency of not of the Ukrainian people is that they still uh, are, are, are being educated, even though it's abroad. Mm. Uh, so thank you, Melissa, for taking my call. Thank you, Jim. Thanks so much. Yeah, th- Go ahead, thanks, Daniel. Jim, for that message, and um, yeah, I've noticed that as well. There are Americans who are here. I've spoken with volunteer doctors who have volunteered here in Ukraine, and there are Americans. Um, who on their own volition are volunteering and fighting alongside Ukrainians as well. At the same time, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow has called this week for U.S. citizens to leave Russia immediately, Daniel. That's an urgent message that just went out. Americans no longer safe in Russia? Well, you know, that there have been messages from the State Department going back a year. Uh, there are various levels of warning. Um, but yes, that, that, was, that was a big message from the State Department. Listen, we've seen multiple cases where Americans have been unjustly imprisoned in Russia. We saw the case famously of Brittany Griner. Uh, we saw the case of former Marine Trevor Reed, and there's also former Marine Paul Whelan, who's still in a Russian prison today. So we have seen situations where uh, U.S. citizens are being held almost like like trade, uh, like trade prisoners, uh, like trade ships uh, mm-hmm. by Russia. So there are concerns about Americans traveling to Russia. Um, it, it, is, it is a concerning situation, and it's something that we're clear that we'll be following closely at the world for sure. Five four nine two nine three seven to connect with Daniel Offman, reporter for the world covering the war in Ukraine. Ray in Jacksonville. Hello, Ray. What's your question? Thank you, Melissa, for taking my call. So I have a question um, for you and also for the reporter. Why is uh, the Russia not expelled from the Security Council as the rapist? And why is China not expelled and also held accountable as the assistant to the rapists. We all know that if it wasn't for Chinese support, uh, Russia would be unable to continue. So why are why are these two countries not held financially and morally responsible? Thanks, Ray. Daniel, there have been efforts to isolate Russia on the world stage, but what about his question? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, many here in Ukraine have asked that question. There have been campaigns to do that. I, I could say generally that uh, a lot of these international institutions, it takes a lot to make to make big moves like that. Um, uh, in general, as, as you said, there have been efforts for the last year to sanction Russia, to remove it from some international institutions, to isolate it uh, in the global financial market. Uh, some of these sanctions have been having effect, uh, having an effect. Some of the sanctions have some delayed effects uh, so far. Um, there's been a bit of a campaign right now in Ukraine to ban Russian athletes from participating in the Olympics in Paris. So all of these, all of these arenas, all of these international arenas uh, in which Russia may or may not participate, it's there's always a question mark around it, and there's a lot of activism going on to to make a change. At the same time, nearly a million people, it's estimated, have left Russia, fled Russia since the Ukrainian invasion. A lot of the men who don't want to be conscripted into the Russian army. There are reports that some Russians are actually fighting against their homeland, taking Ukraine's side. There are reports of Russia abducting Ukrainian children and holding them in re-education camps, a war crime, separating kids in Ukraine from their families. Have you covered that as well? These these are these are top top stories uh, for for coverage. Um, yeah, you mentioned a couple of things. 
one of them is is the uh, outflow of of Russia, some Russian people from Russia. Uh, the numbers do vary, but it is a significant amount. Um, and that that as well has happened in multiple waves. Uh, many people uh, left on right around February 24th a year ago into March uh, and decided that they didn't want to live in a country that invades Ukraine, that invades a, a neighboring country. Then many left later once Russia announced the so-called partial mobilization in which many more people felt directly affected by the uh, by the invasion into Ukraine. Um, many didn't want to get drafted and so therefore left the country. Uh, in terms of the Russians, uh, certain Russians who are joining Ukraine's forces, there has been reporting around that. Um, you mentioned that they're fighting against their homeland. Um, some, I imagine that some of those Russians who have volunteered to fight alongside Ukrainians don't see that they're fighting against their homeland. They're fighting in a way for their homeland. What they're fighting mm -hmm. against is the Putin regime, a regime that they disagree with and would like to see uh, move on in one way or another. And uh, th the last point that you mentioned is the 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 uh, the many children who have been abducted or have been forced uh, from Ukraine into Russia. Uh, that is something that is very concerning. Uh, there are networks of people throughout the world uh, who are working on tracking down some of those kids and bringing them back to their homeland. But not every kid will be tracked down. And this, this is something that is very concerning uh, to many Ukrainians. And it, it is certainly something that is worth following. It's horrifying. I mean, is the idea, is Putin's idea to simply try to subsume Ukraine back into Russia to erase the Ukrainian national identity? There have been mixed messages from Russia, but Putin has said directly that he he doesn't really believe that Ukraine is a real country. He said that Ukraine was created by the Soviet Union. Um, he said many things about Ukraine that Ukrainians and people all around the world disagree with. But if if you looked at what he said, Putin has said directly and other officials around him have said directly, the initial goal of this war, of this full-scale invasion, was to get all the way to Kiev to to take over the government and to uh you know subsume certain parts into Russia and to uh take control um so uh that those were the maximalist goals that Russia had in mind when this war began uh it has not been able to, to achieve those goals but the, but the fighting continues 5492937 Mike in Jacksonville hey Mike thanks for holding you're on the air yeah, I couldn't agree more, couldn't disagree more with what this man is saying and what you're saying. Uh, let me ask a simple question. How did the current conflict in Donbass area, Luhansk, Donbass, how did it start and when did it start? This is directed to the reporter for the world. Okay. Daniel. Uh, absolutely. Uh, in 2014, uh, in around, well, even before around 2014, there were protests in Ukraine against their president, the Russian backed president. His name was uh, Viktor Yanukovych. At the time, uh, Ukraine was trying to get closer to the European Union, uh, was trying to get closer to the West. Uh, and at the time, Yanukovych basically pivoted towards Putin. And so there was frustration with uh, the president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych which led to the Maidan revolution, or as Ukrainians call it, the revolution of dignity, in which many people went to the streets, went to the main square, the Maidan, to protest against that president. After some time, that president directed his SWAT teams to, to violently uh, push away the protesters. At some point, they shot at protesters and killed some of them. And at that time, Russia used that opportunity to send its troops into Ukrainian territory, into Crimea, and then send more troops and unravel a war in eastern Ukraine. Uh, that's kind of the origin of how this war began. And what we're seeing right now is really a continuation from February 24th. In the far eastern oblasts or portions of Ukraine, there are Russian sympathizers. Is that correct to say as well? You know, this is something that's come up often. Uh, I there there are like 
nothing is a monolith. There likely are some. Yeah. However, I must say that since 2014, even those who may have been more inclined to support Russia, that support has dwindled and dwindled and dwindled, and even more so since the 24th. It's hard to support a country. Uh, it's hard to support a government um, that is raining down rockets and artillery at you. Um, it, that's just the situation. I have not, I've spoken to many Ukrainians here. I've spoken to Ukrainians uh, in eastern parts of the country who are native Russian speakers, but they strongly identify as Ukrainians and they want to remain part of Ukraine. Speaking of rockets raining down, Ukraine's rocket campaign is apparently reliant on American technology, U.S. precision targeting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, from the beginning of the war, there ha we've learned that there has been a lot of partnership between Ukraine and the United States uh, in which there aren't American troops on the ground in Ukraine. But uh, the U.S. has supported Ukraine in terms of some intelligence. Uh, the United States, of course, has satellites, has a lot of information that it's been uh, at times sharing with Ukraine. And yes, the, the HIMARS, this kind of rocket launching system, is very accurate and it could shoot targets from many uh, from from many miles away. Uh, and so by helping find some of these targets and with those rocket launch systems, uh, Ukraine has been successfully able to push back some of Russia's supplies of its artillery further east, which makes uh, which makes Russia have to jump through a lot more hoops, uh, logistically speaking, in order to maintain maintain the kind of war effort that they've been that they've been able to that they've been able to that they've been that that, that, they, that they've had uh -huh. earlier in the war. Okay, so. Uh, that is the extent of uh, the support in terms of the rocket launch systems. Now, Daniel, Vladimir Putin uh, made a lot of noise about potentially using nuclear weapons in this conflict. There's been less discussion of, or worry about that recently. But I think as this drags on, people are wondering, what is the end game in Ukraine? What do you think? Uh, right, right now, we're at a point where both sides, both Ukraine and Russia, have maximalist goals. What that means is that what Ukraine wants, it wants to push every single Russian troop out of its territory. What they're saying publicly is that includes the Crimean Peninsula. And Russia, on the other hand, is maintaining its war effort. It's saying, it, many of their officials are saying publicly that they will push Ukraine out of the eastern part of the country, out of Donbass, and then they'll go further. So at this point, when both sides have such a maximalist position, there's very little room for negotiation. Neither side wants to sit down at the negotiating table because they both project, at least publicly, that they're confident that they could reach the result that they want. So for now, we're going to see more, more fighting. Every war ends with some negotiation. The question is, what will be the conditions on the ground when the, those negotiations start? And when will that happen? Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us live via Zoom from Kiev and stay safe. Thank you for your reporting. Thank you very much for having me and thanks for being interested in our coverage, uh, the world's coverage here in Ukraine. He's Daniel Offman, reporter for The World. Make sure to tune in Friday, February 20th for special coverage on the world marking the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and another special broadcast on the 24th. Much more still ahead, including a preview of the Reigns Rebalt showdown today at the High School Heritage Classic. And up next, how local faith leaders are pushing back against Christian nationalism. We'll be right back. Well, a new survey, survey finds nearly a third of Americans, 29 percent, qualify as Christian nationalists. The poll from PRRI and Brookings Institute finds 
Adherents to Christian nationalism believe political violence can be justified, that God has called Christians to exercise dominion over all aspects of American society, and other beliefs that supporters of our system of government say are of concern, particularly in the wake of January 6th. Jacksonville chaplain Michael Nylon is part of a local faith community pushing back against these Christian nationalist beliefs through racial justice work, and he's on the line to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. How are you? I'm good. Um, Thanks for being with us. So you're part of a faith community uh, that we'll talk about here, and it has to do with racial justice work. But first, I want to ask you, what motivated you to join this, given that we are seeing an upsurge in Christian nationalist beliefs in America? Um, The major motivation for me was uh, I was a graduate student in Charlottesville um, when Unite the Right happened. And um, for a long time, I had been committed to different types of um, nonprofit and social justice work, but I hadn't really fully engaged with um, white supremacy and specifically how I, as a, you know, middle class, raised middle class, raised Methodist, raised um, white male, and also kind of formally educated and and taught to kind of um, not admit that I was racist, how that kept causing problems in terms of me trying to avoid engaging with racism. Mm -hmm. Um, So that became part of my experience as a graduate student. And when I moved in the direction of wanting to become a chaplain, I found that even in my training program here in the Jacksonville area, which happened around the time of George Floyd's murder, that um, my cohort, which was just me and five other chaplains and, and the wider system in which I was educated, um, was struggling with the same kind of question. Um, how do we, as chaplains, work for social justice um, from the standpoint of God's mercy, self-acceptance, compassion. And because I got into Zen um, as I grew older, from the standpoint of of mindfulness of our own embodied experiencing, feelings of discomfort, feelings of um, avoidance. So that's kind of a short story of how I got interested. Hmm. So you've been using research to develop a method to bring mindfulness to this racial justice work here in Northeast Florida. Can you explain how that works, what that's all about? So, yeah, it's a good question. And this is like kind of part and parcel of what chaplains do is to be able to make space. And we do this in different kinds of ways based on our religious identity. Uh, As a person who practices mindfulness, I can say even now as I'm talking to you on the phone, and I'm not even imagining all the people who are listening, I'm just imagining talking with you. Uh, Because we're talking about race and racism, and I'm admitting that I'm a a racist in certain ways, there's tremendous amount of anxiety and discomfort that comes up for me in my experience. Um, I mean, I feel nauseous a little bit. I feel like my stomach is turning. Uh, I don't want to have this conversation. And... In truth, I think the majority of us, whether or not we believe that something needs to be done or not, whether or not we're, you know, progressives or MAGA Republicans or somewhere in between, the vast majority of us who have been raised as people who identify as white, men and women, have been taught to uh, ignore, avoid, not speak of, act as if racism isn't a thing. Uh, act as if it's something from the 1960s. So what mindfulness provides for me, and this is based on lots of research uh, that I did as a graduate student on neurobiology, how neurobiology works, um, how our nervous system works in terms of being aroused and being settled, parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system, how those two work. Um, and people who are like Ruth King um, and other, you know, black gay, lesbian, transgender mindfulness teachers are engaging with these questions. Um, If we bring to bear an attitude of self-acceptance while we're monitoring feelings in our bodies, 
that are signals of our racism that's been really cultivated in us by social institutions throughout our lifetime. Like, it's not our responsibility. Like, we don't need to feel guilty that these things have been embedded in us. Um, we need to figure out how to be accountable for undoing them in our present moment experience, right? So mindfulness just provides the ability to pay attention to that without avoiding it, without becoming triggered and enacting some kind of harm on others, which can even be like if I'm in a, a group where there are other white males who are talking about their experience, I can act as if from a perspective of self-righteousness that like I don't have that problem and like a lack of humility, try to act as if I don't have that problem, even criticize them. What mindfulness does is it disarms that. It actually provides me with a space to accept what I'm experiencing in myself and be compassionate and kind towards myself. So then anything that comes out of me from that point on will be also merciful, compassionate, uh, kind. Now, you started doing this in community settings to kick off Black History Month, it so happens. Do you plan more of these kinds of sessions and how can people join in? God willing, I, I feel like this kind of work needs to be done more. Um, my friend David Williamson, who's at Grace United Methodist, that's where uh, he's been doing this kind of work through another platform called Visions, which is similar to mindfulness in many ways. It's really about visions trying on and working with your own emotional experiences that deal with, um, you know, personal, interpersonal, institutional, and cultural forms of racism and discrimination. He's been doing this for, you know, five years. I've been off and on uh, talking with him and trying it out in my own spiritual care work um, and specifically using spiritual care um, chaplain skill set kind of engage with discussions around this. I'm also supposed to be talking to a group of my colleagues whom I respect very much in my training cohort who are in different uh, medical institutions in the Jacksonville area. And we're thinking about how we can have discussions around, you know, race and racism and in clinical care and beyond. And um, I hope, I hope that other people can try to find a way to join in this kind of work. I don't, I don't think it necessarily needs to be like, super high bar like it's it's like if we are given the opportunity to do something about um injustice if we can meet with people and and have real conversations that are grounded in our own embodied experience they're peaceful and they're accepting ourselves and others and not avoid the the difficult discussions i think that's a step in the right direction and many things can come from that so my, that's my hope melissa that more more and more people will do this kind of work well, keep in touch with us. He's Jacksonville Chaplain Michael Nylon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Melissa. Well, it's Black History Month, and as part of all of the celebrations, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp is hosting historic rivals, Reigns and Rebald High Schools. It's the fourth annual High School Heritage Classic Exhibition Game, and it's all going down later today at 121 Financial Ballpark. And that's not all. The Shrimp are also bringing the Jack's Melanin Market to the park Saturday in advance of the HBCU Heritage Classic. Harold Craw is executive vice president and general manager with the Jumbo Shrimp, and he's on the line. Hi, Harold. Hi, Melissa. Good to talk to you. So, Reigns and Rebald on the field today. Tell us about the big game. 
Yeah, we're excited to host our, our fourth annual uh, this year. So uh, the game's inception uh, was in 2019, uh, pitted two traditional high school rivals against each other. The cool and unique thing about uh, the game is that both teams will don uh, the Negro League Jacksonville Redcaps uniforms, one home, one road. Uh, and then, obviously, throughout the game, uh, between innings, we will have the opportunity to share some of the history of the Negro League, uh, whether it be nationally or even locally to Jacksonville, uh, which is a huge opportunity for us to just share the history of baseball in our great city while all at the same time allowing uh, two high schools an opportunity to play on a professional field. Wow, that's great because, of course, some of the greatest players the game has ever known, like Hank Aaron and others, they played here in Jacksonville in the Negro Leagues. Yes, definitely. And so, that, I mean, we have a rich history. Uh, we have one of five uh, ballparks uh, that are still functioning on historical registry as a historical ballpark in our J.P. Smalls ballpark or uh, that we have here in town. And the history of, ba- of baseball in our town uh, dates back so long ago. I'm continuing to learn about some of the the uh, talents that were here, only being here for roughly seven years. And so every year I feel like I learn new things about our area and folks that, you know, that have played here uh, as well. And, and knowing the history of baseball uh, at the mm-hmm. high school level in Jacksonville is pretty cool, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but have a former professional baseball player uh, that I worked with in a past life for another organization that is born and raised in Jacksonville. Uh, Obviously graduated from Reigns High School and Vince Coleman that played professionally for a number of years with the St. Louis Cardinals. And so learning that he went to Reigns was something that I found just so interested in him not actually having that conversation when we worked together for an entire summer mm. uh, with another minor league baseball affiliate. Mm. Now let's talk about Reigns and Rebalt. Uh, the winning team tonight earns the A. Philip Randolph Cup that commemorates the famed civil rights activist who hailed from Jacksonville and organized the March on Washington. After the Reigns Vikings won each of the first two high school heritage classics to take home the cup, in 2020 and 2021, the Rebalt Trojans won last year. So this is sounds like a big grudge match. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. It was exciting to see Rebalt uh, take one last year at a close play at the plate, which is pretty cool to have that happen uh, in a game like this. So I'm excited to see who pulls out the win this year. Each game has been exciting in its own way. Um, and so I'm always interested to see how it takes, you know, takes form this year, you know, each year. Is so different. It's kind of like a baseball game in a baseball season. Everything is so different that you have to be prepared for, for pretty much anything. And, and those guys really, really uh, go toe to toe and they play hard and give maximum effort uh, on every play, which is so exciting to watch. Now, after tonight's big game between Reigns and Rebalt, uh, tell us about what's happening Saturday when you bring the Jacksonville Melanin Market to the ballpark. This is ahead of the HBCU Heritage Classic between uh, historically black colleges, Edward Waters University and Lemoyne Owen College. And there's going to be a parade, yeah. too. Yeah, so we're excited about uh, the partnership. You know, it started about uh, a little over a year ago in just me, as I said, uh, only being here for you know roughly seven years, really learning more about the melanin market and finally having an opportunity to participate. And I was so uh, taken back uh, and impressed by, by what that organization uh, was doing that we began to engage. And so we're lucky enough to be able to host uh, the melanin market or have it just outside our stadium uh, and going on right ahead of us actually playing uh, the HBCU Heritage Classic here uh, as well. And we love, obviously, to host Edward Waters in our stadium as our local HBCU. And so we're excited to, to be able to play that game. And the partnership with the Melanin Market really uh, was cemented uh, with the idea of the parade and what happens for the Melanin Market and really having that opportunity to traverse our warning track 
uh, ahead of the game and before first pitch uh, of the baseball game that will happen on Saturday uh, with the college level or the HBCU uh, Heritage Classic. So I'm excited. Yeah, no. really excited about that event. Right. Now, the Melanin Market has been around for several years now, and they create a platform for minority-owned businesses, products, and services. So will people be able to come out Saturday outside the ballpark and shop? Yes, you are so correct. So, I mean, that is what's the genesis behind it. We should put, we thought put two, putting two great events together just made sense. So people will be able to come visit the Melanin Market, shop uh, those wares, and we hope that you come in. Uh, and join us as well uh, for the baseball game. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say, because of the weather that we had last Saturday evening, we had to reschedule our Black History Month movie night uh, to this Saturday. So following the Melanin Market, then HBCU Heritage Classic will be a movie night uh, at the ballpark featuring uh, the, the Disney movie Soul. Oh, fun. Uh, and that's something that we see a lot with the Jumbo Shrimp. Uh, you guys do such a good job with organizing creative programming to make uh, a night at the ballpark fun for the whole family, fun for a night out with friends. That's a big part of what you do. Yeah, it's so it's so important for us because we understand and we and we know that not everyone is a baseball fan, uh, which we promote our games as events, not actual baseball games, but giving another opportunity to visit the stadium in a different way or for a different purpose um, only creates the opportunity for folks to feel comfortable traveling from where their homes may be to our stadium, parking in one of the parking lots and actually getting inside the stadium. And so uh, that's really helpful in a way of really introducing folks to one to one financial ballpark, but also having folks feel comfortable uh, coming down to the stadium and coming to events. So hopefully uh, they'll join us for a couple jumbo shrimp games. But, yeah, we're so excited about the movie night and then the myriad of other events uh, that we put on throughout the year. Uh, all of this at your website, jackshrimp.com, right? Yeah, that is correct. Find us definitely at jackshrimp.com. And we're, we're pretty active uh, in the social space as well. Um, you can search us Jack Shrimp and find us on there. So we, we try to we don't take ourselves too serious, so we try to try to be a little bit sarcastic, have some fun, uh, and, and have make some folks smile as well. But, yes, please find us on the web at jackshrimp.com. Well, thank you so much, Harold. He's Harold Craw, Executive Vice President and General Manager with the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. Have fun tonight and this weekend. Thank you. And good luck to Reigns and Rebolt tonight and to the HBCUs on Saturday. And check out that Melanin Market and the Parade Saturday, too, at the ballpark. In a moment, how you can attend the Amelia Island Book Festival and raise money for promoting literacy in Nassau County. And some other good news for your Wednesday. We'll be right back. The Jacksonville Business Journal produces special events to recognize industry leaders and facilitate professional networking, event listings, and registration info at bizjournals.com Jacksonville. At ViStar Credit Union, we believe in helping members reach their financial goals and building stronger communities. It's why we offer our members better rates and give back to the places we call home. ViStar Credit Union. Visit vistarcu.org join. Next time on The World, the first Ukrainian territory annexed by Russia, Crimea, was seized after Russia's invasion in 2014. 
That spelled bad news for ethnic minorities there, like the Tatar community. Crimean Tatars do not support Russia because of persecution. Crimean Tatars start to flee Crimea. Many who stayed in Crimea want to rejoin Ukraine. Their story on the world. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Deepal Fernandez. The film Argentina 1985 tells the story of the prosecution of the leaders of the military junta that ruled Argentina in the late 70s. They abduct people and then torture them and then execute them with no trial. They were never investigated and prosecuted. They were just executed secretly. It's now up for an Oscar. Next time, here and now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. Dating apps have turned swiping right or left into a game of romantic roulette. They're part of a multi-billion dollar industry with the power to reshape how we think of others and ourselves. But these apps have become the most popular way for people to connect. How have they changed the way we date and what tricks are developers using to keep us hooked? That's next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Well, the Amelia Island Book Festival kicks off this Friday with big name authors on hand. Lots of interesting workshops, and it's for a great cause. They're raising money to promote literacy in Nassau County. Here's Amelia Island Book Festival President Paige Forey. So our festival begins on Friday, and on Friday morning and afternoon, we have the Authors and Schools program. And the media specialists have chosen a book for the students in Nassau County, and we provide a book to every student in Nassau County, and the authors visit the schools. And then Friday night, we have our gala at the Ritz-Carlton, and our celebrity authors will be at the gala. And this year, we have Kate Quinn, David Baldacci, Scott Tarot, and Jeanette Walls. And then on Saturday, we have our free expo at Fernandina Beach Middle School. So it's free to anyone that wants to attend. So post-pandemic literacy rates have actually been decreasing for our students in school, not only in, you know, Florida, Nassau County, and Duval County, but across the nation. So we are hoping to promote literacy through all of our events that we have scheduled throughout the year. So do your part and meet some great authors and talk about books. It's the Amelia Island Book Festival starting this Friday on the island. For tickets and information, just visit ameliaislandbookfestival.org. And here's some more good news for your week. Speaking of Amelia, you're invited to join the Amelia Island Quilt Guild for Quilts by the Sea. This is coming up Friday and Saturday at the Atlantic Recreation Center in Fernandina Beach. Now, the show features beautifully created judged quilts made by members with 15 different quilt categories. You'll check out a variety of styles and techniques in quilting, including traditional, modern, applique, fiber art, holiday quilts, and more. You can also check out the special display of challenge quilts, eight flags over Fernandina Beach, fiber art representing the island's unique history. Lots of shopping, too, so check that out this weekend. Well, registration for voluntary pre-kindergarten in the next school year is underway now. Families are encouraged to register their four-year-old in Florida's free VPK education program, and you can do it with the Early Learning Coalition of Duval. This week, they're hosting the Launch for Love for Learning celebration. Excuse me, that's Launch the Love for Learning celebration. Families visiting the ELC offices will receive a free kids' book, beach bucket, and shovel. Fun. Research shows that children who graduate from a quality VPK program do better in school than those who don't. So check it all out at elcduval.org. Here's another website to bookmark for you. St. John's Riverkeeper has launched their new recreation website, Explore the St. John's River. Now, this is for outdoor enthusiasts and novices alike. Visitors to the site can look at various categories like hiking, kayaking, marinas, dining on the water, places to stay, and more. So you can learn about and plan outings throughout the St. John's River watershed. 
It's a unique space for users to discover places to explore along the 310-mile river, including lakes, creeks, tributaries, and natural lands that make up the river's nearly 9,000-square-mile watershed. This site also highlights local businesses, eateries, hotels, and fish camps. Visit explorethesaintjohns.com and find a new place to launch your kayak or boat, walk along the water, and enjoy our mild winter weather. You can even learn about guided nature tours along the water. Check that out at explorethesaintjohns.com. And finally, it's downtown's must-attend party, Rhinestone Calford. This is coming up soon. All you cowboys and gals, it's a cowboy theme for the gala. You're invited to throw on tight-fitting jeans, sequin spangled shirts, fringed finery, cowboy boots, and of course, 10-gallon hats to hoot and holler and raise funds for placemaking in downtown Jacksonville. The Big Bash is coming up next Friday, February 24th at 142 North Madison Street. Get your tickets at downtownjacksonville.org. And if you've got a tasty little item that you'd like us to add to our weekly Wednesday menu of good news, well, it's easy to get it in the queue. Just drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks also to our fantastic team, David Luckin, Heather Schatz, Brendan Rivers, Isabella De Silva, Michelle Corum, and Bridget O'Brien. As I said, you can get in touch anytime. Drop us all a line. Emails go to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. I'm Melissa Ross. This is WJCT News 899 Jacksonville. Thanks so much for the company and make it a great day. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.